Fermanagh, Tyrone, up into Derry, across into Antrim, and eventually back towards Belfast. Johnny's right. Best again. A glorious goal by Best. What a magnificent goal by Best. Thank you very much um, for that uh, very kind introduction and uh, thank you also to Jeff for that presentation. It, it really did set me thinking about a number of things. And um, good morning to everybody. Um, I hope you are well. Um, so the story goes, a while ago, a businessman went to New York because he wanted to escape all the workload that uh, he was faced with at um, his business in Manchester. And uh, he took his wife to go to uh, New York for about a month. And by the second day, his wife was heard to say to him, I'm absolutely fed up with all the messages that are coming in from the head office. All the messages you're having to deal with uh, from suppliers, from potential customers, I'm absolutely fed up with this. And by the third day, the businessman threw up his hands and said, I agree with you. I'm feeling the same sense of overwhelm this side of the Atlantic as I would have been if I was back in the head office in Manchester. And they, I guess, they were complaining about um, the modern technology of the time. And what's interesting about this story is that the date of that holiday was February 1912. <laughs> and the invention that they were lamenting, um, or the, the item that they were um, lamenting the invention of, was the telegraph wire. So is it any wonder that more than 100 years later, the thing that is the big challenge for us in the workplace is this issue of overload? And I remember 30 years ago, I was reading an article by quite a well-known and quite a well-regarded futurologist. And he was saying that he felt technology was getting so, or introducing so many efficiencies into the workplace that by 2020, most of us would be home by three o'clock because there'd be nothing left to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly not home at three o'clock. And if I am, it's probably to do some more work at home. It's very interesting to hear Jeff say that he feels that um, the advent of better technology in the workplace has actually worked against a lot of people in the education sector. And I think, you know, if anything, it's actually done a lot of harm or damage in the sense that what it's really done, technology, it's reduced the expectation of turnaround times. When I first went into the workplace in the olden days, in the early 80s, you always had that grace period of an extra 24 hours because if a client phoned you and said, where's this work that you promised me? I could say, oh, it was in the post and blame the post office. <laughs> Can't do that anymore. If something is due in at two o'clock and you haven't emailed it to somebody, at ten past two you can be sure you're going to get a phone call saying, where on earth is my um, document? I just want to explain a little bit about who I am because I think a bit of context might be useful here in just setting the scene in terms of what approach I take to this particular subject. I started off as a very average 
underperforming schoolboy, I think. Um, in Devon, anybody here from Devon? Yes, okay. Ottery St. Mary, does that mean anything to you? Tiny little place on the south coast of um, Devon. Then I went to university just up the road in Birmingham for three years, had a wonderful time, came out with a degree. Um, I could play the guitar. I, am, I came out a very good pool player. It was a wonderful three years. <laughs> and then I dorm one of these for like five years before I realized that it just wasn't my vocation in life and I just didn't have the skill sets. Um, so I abandoned it and I changed profession. A few people have said, did you hold on to the wig? And for some reason they keep asking me that. <laughs> and I became one of these. So what is one of these? Well, I guess it's someone who aspires in that particular profession to be as successful as this guy here. Now, this guy here, I really rate. I've, I've read all of his stuff. I just do wish he wouldn't smile like that. For some reason, when I see him smiling like that, it kind of says to me, I'm worth eight billion and you're not. But maybe I'm being a little bit unfair. I started, I, I now have three businesses. My main business is Legal Island, as, as you've heard. Um, I've been going 21 years. We have a turnover of about £2 million and I employ about 25 members of staff. And why me? How come I'm here? As you would have heard, Askell very kindly invited me along to talk last year. Um, and to talk about management and leadership issues, because at the time we were going through a reassessment of investors in people, gold, um, investors in people. We had gold and we were trying to get over the line and to get to platinum. So it was very timely that I came along and I could share issues on management and leadership. And then after that, um, I got a call from Askell again and they said, would you come along and talk in, in June about issues relating to overwhelm and your own performance in the workplace? And the timing of that call couldn't have been better because with IIP, it was all about teams and it was about organisation. And I was wanting to get into a period in which I thought, well, what about me and what about handling all the pressures of doing my job? And so I said, okay, and this was about January, I thought that gives me roughly six months to look at this area. And I got out all the books that um, I had on my desk that I've ordered from Amazon. I don't know about you. Do you go onto Amazon, order a book, and then it arrives and you look at it on your desk and you think, that's a really good book. I really ought to read that. Well, I, those are my piles of books, ladies and gentlemen. And I thought, here's a really good opportunity to read these go through the lot of them, summaries of these books, listen to podcasts from all these gurus on self-development and self-organization to see what I could share with you today. So the news is, ladies and gentlemen, you'll be pleased to know I've successfully dealt with my piles and I'm going to be sharing with you the very best of what I think um, these books have to offer. My observations I want to share as I get towards my top five things, which I would like to leave you with as ways of dealing with um, uh, overwhelm, but also ways to help optimize you um, and your performance in the workplace. 
But there's a bit of a caveat that comes with all of this. It's very easy to go to conferences like this and you, you hear good speakers and you get very pumped up and you go away, but nothing too much happens because you forget about the follow-through. Isn't that right? You really do. So I'm going to get you to do a bit of work right at the end, okay? Now, don't worry. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to get up and go all happy-clappy on me or anything like that. But I am going to... Do ask you to do one thing which is important to start the process of taking this all away and applying it in your workplace. I think we need to come at this subject looking at three particular areas. I think we need to talk about your relationship with yourself and others, your relationship with your working environment and your relationship with technology. And I'd like to start with that first issue of technology right at the beginning. Last year, we all heard about the data protection regulation and there was headlines that were saying all about organizations are being hacked, schools and trusts are being hacked, databases are being hacked, your mobile phone is being hacked. But you know, the real truth of all of this is that we are all being hacked. That's the real truth of all of this. Because every time when you go to work and you sit down in front of a computer screen or your iPad or a PC, the other side of that screen is a whole team of experts trying to work to take your attention from you. And they're very good at it. They're marketing experts, they're sales experts, they're psychologists, and they're all out there trying to distract you, to take your attention to a particular place where they can get more details off you or they can sell you something. That's the hard reality. And in the marketing world, they call this clickbait that they dangle in front of you. Now, I fell for a bit of clickbait a couple of months ago. I went into the office and I booted up to check my email. And out popped on the side of the screen something that said, you won't believe what Kate Bush looks like now. And as a young teenager, I loved Kate Bush. I had a poster of Kate Bush at the end of my bed on a wall and I used to go to sleep looking and well we'll leave that story there shall we <laughs> and two months ago I was clicking on this thing furiously like a man completely possessed and of course you get taken into a set of PowerPoint slides there's 30 of them and the first click you see is not Kate Bush, nor is it the second, nor is it the third, but you see photographs of other older musicians, you see lots of adverts. And then finally I got to um, number 30, and there was a picture of Kate Bush. And guess what? She looked exactly as I'd expect somebody who's pushing 60 to look like. And I've been robbed of the last 20 or 30 minutes of my life because my brain had been hijacked by this thing. We're so easy to trick. The other issue is we're not only being hacked by these experts, we're being hacked or you're being hacked by your colleagues. They are pinging you emails throughout the day, trying to get you to do things for them. And you have to protect against that as well as these experts coming through the computer. And I want to talk about that in a moment. Value of social media. This is just really an observation, I guess, more than anything else. I don't know about you, but five, ten years ago, when LinkedIn became popular, 
I got excited because I thought there's a, there's a, a way here of following people that ordinarily you couldn't get close to. And I thought, this is a really good thing. But now LinkedIn just seems to be full of people who are, if you like, social peacocking. People who are just saying how delighted they are to be speaking at a particular conference or delighted to be attending with somebody of obviously some significance. And, you know, I look at all of this and I think, well, I'm delighted that you're delighted, but where is all this delight getting us? And Facebook, Facebook, I gave up Facebook on February the 14th of this year because I couldn't bear any more individuals declaring an undying love for their partner <laughs> and seeing their partner come back and say, no, darling, I love you more. And I'm thinking, well, it's wonderful that they do, but if that is the case, why don't you just tell them personally, face to face? Why do you need to do it on social media? Or am I missing something here? I don't know. Um, but that disconnect between what is going on in social media and on the real world is just getting bigger and bigger. I forget who said it, but they said and this, and it captured it brilliantly. They said, if only I was as happy as I appear to be on social media. It just seems to capture it perfectly. But... We have to be cautious here because I'm not advising everybody to have abandoned the internet because the internet is a fabulous resource tool. And in the internet, of course, is the old chestnut, the World Wide Web, which is a fabulous resource tool. When I was a kid, if I was set homework and I, I had to do a page on Benjamin Franklin or something, I would go home. And if my parents didn't know who Benjamin Franklin was, you were in big trouble. And the only option I had was to go down the road to the house at the end of the estate, which was known as the Posh House, because they had a set of Encyclopedia Britannica. And you could knock the door and say, can I come in and find out about Benjamin Franklin? And if they weren't in, you were in big trouble. Of course, now, with the World Wide Web, you've got infinite resources, and it's a fabulous tool. And I wouldn't be here saying to you, we've got to abandon the internet. But what I would say is that I think we've got to change our approach to the internet. And we have to look at it and say, it's about lightning strikes now. It's about getting in, getting the information that we need and getting out quickly. That's what we have to do as part of our reappraising our relationship with the internet. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers this uh, film, Jason and the, the Golden Fleece. Jason goes off and he has to try and get this Golden Fleece. And it's protected by a monster with, I think, five heads. And he manages to get in and take the Golden Fleece and escape and uh, has this thing of huge value. And I, I think it's the similar thing in terms of the World Wide Web for us now. We just get in quickly, get out and um, run for it. We've heard um, about email this morning, and I can't take this topic on without just mentioning this here. I think we have to reappraise our, our relationship with the internet, and we have to understand an email. We have to understand that emails are not our to-do list, and so many staff 
and, and workers that I've worked with in the last 10, 15 years don't, I think, get that. And they just work through their emails and they think, I've done really, really well because I've managed to clear them all by four o'clock and they feel that they've been really effective. This is what I do and feel free to, to copy this if, if you want to. I go in on Monday morning and I email staff and I remind them that I'm operating slow email. And effectively, I'll be checking my email for the first time at 11 o'clock, then at 2 o'clock, and then again at 4 o'clock. And if they have any urgent work that doesn't fit around those times, call me. And the, the number of calls I've, I've had in the last year is minimal. It really is. But it means when I go in, I start working on the stuff that I should be working on. And that's, I think, the really um, important uh, thing to remember. Also, of course, your phone was invented originally for phone calls. And I had a look at my phone schedule a few weeks back, and I was surprised how much time I was spending on the phone, either making calls or receiving calls. So I just tried it for a whole week, and I thought, I'm not going to take any calls during business hours at all. And I'll pick up messages at three o'clock and I may respond either by email or by phone at three o'clock. And what I found was that most messages finished by the caller saying, in any, in any event, Barry, I'll, I'll send you an email on this anyway. And that had saved me a conversation with somebody, probably 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. And now, when I operate this system, I probably spend no more than 15 minutes on the phone a week simply by making that um, one adjustment. Relationships. Your relationship with others and yourself, I think this is key. And I just want to start off with this rather grim observation about human beings. DNA-wise, 15% of us actually resembles a banana. DNA-wise, 30% of us represents yeast, and 98% of our DNA is the same as a chimpanzee. We're a bit of a mess, to be frank. Psychologists will tell you that they're not even 1% on the journey of understanding what's going on in our head. We are very, very complex creatures. We are very mixed up creatures and we are deeply, deeply flawed as human beings. So, ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to turn to the person sat next to you and say to them, you're a freaking mess. <laughs> because it's true. It really is true. Now, what do we do if we are a freaking mess? Where do we start in trying to get some sense of order in our head to get some sort of organization going around us? Well, I want to start with this, multitasking. My grandfather, he was a Yorkshire man, and he said to me when I was a, a lad, he said, son, he said, if you can kiss a woman whilst driving a car at the same time, there's something badly wrong. And it took me ages to work that out. And I thought, what on earth is he, is he meaning by that? And it wasn't until my late teens that what I realized he was saying was, focus on one thing, one task 
and do that one task really well. I guess he was well ahead of his time because even in the 90s and the noughties, do you remember, perhaps you you're involved in um, compiling job descriptions and one of the requirements, essential requirements, must be able to multitask. Remember those? Well, since the 70s, the educational psychiatrists have been telling us, shouting loud and loud, we cannot multitask. As human beings, we are not wired to be able to multitask. Now, when I've said that before at conferences, people look at one another and say, well, he doesn't do my job, I couldn't do that without multitasking. You're not actually multitasking, you're firing off single tasks in often very random and disparate directions. There was a psychologist who managed to multitask. He managed to teach himself to juggle with one hand and to write a letter with the other hand. And it took him three months to get there. Three months. We're just not designed to do it. What those job descriptions should be saying is, we want somebody that understands the superpower of single tasking and remaining on one focus or focusing on one thing at a time. How can we do that? Well, here's a couple of tips that I picked up, which were probably the most useful from all those books that I read. And it's this, it's batch and it's chunk. Batch tasks, which are similar, like emails. So do your emails at 11 o'clock for half an hour. Batch calls, batch report writing, and do those in chunks of 25 minutes. And this little red thing here um, is called a ticking tomato timer. And it's part of the Pomodoro technique. Anybody come across the Pomodoro technique? No? Okay. Um, the Pomodoro technique is simply this. You buy one of those from Amazon and it costs you about 13 quid. And what you do, you turn the timer to 25 minutes and it has this really quite loud ticking noise. Now, remember I said to you about the, the clickbait and Kate Bush and everything else. Afterwards, I was thinking, I'm really stupid, aren't I? Is it really that easy to trick my brain into doing something as simple like that? And I thought to myself, well, can I flip that round and take advantage of my stupidity here and find a technique that will actually convince my brain to do something, which is actually quite easy. And it's this. This thing will tick for 25 minutes. And it's something about that tick that constantly reminds your brain to focus on one thing and to really go for it. And you almost feel quite competitive. It's you against this ticking tomato. It sounds crazy, but I promise you, try it. And next week, if somebody comes into your office and asks you what that ticking tomato is doing on your desk, then just look at them as though they're a bit strange, okay? <laughs> overwhelm. Can't really talk about overwhelm without talking about how you keep work away from you in the first instance. And there's a few things I'd like to say here. First of all, FOMO. Anybody come across FOMO, fear of missing out? I was looking at my diary over the last year and I was looking at why it was that I'd said yes to various things. And I was asking myself after various events, why did I actually go to this event? And a lot of the time I came away and I thought, it's a FOMO thing. 
You know, it's a fear of missing out. And I would go and I think, what am I actually doing here? And then I'd come away and think, it's really just that. So, what about this? Something to practice, turning FOMO into JOMO. JOMO, anyone? Joy of missing out. Thank you very much. So what I, I've been practicing over the last four or five months is when invitations have come in, and I had one in about three months ago to attend a black tie dinner. And I looked at this and I thought, do I really want to go to this? I thought, no, not really. But I put it in the diary as though I was going to it. So when it actually happened that evening, and I wasn't at this black tie dinner, I was actually lying on bed with my four-year-old daughter, eight o'clock, reading her a story, sharing a wonderful moment with her, and really experiencing the joy of missing out and not being at this black tie dinner, listening to all these businessmen moan and gurn about Brexit. Next thing, practicing this, and I would really invite you to do this over the next week, have a go with this practice, a slow yes and a quick no. The slow yes is effectively this, bar yourself from saying immediately yes to any requests, reasonable requests of your time. And say to everybody, say to people when you get those requests, can I get back to you in 24 hours? I just need to check my diary, etc. And in that 24 hour cooling period, you'll be surprised at how well you'll be able to look at this and think, well, actually, I don't think this is a good use of my time. So I'm going to say no to that. And practicing the art of saying no is quite a skill. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel guilty sometimes of letting people down and, and saying no. And I look at people's emails who say no to my invitations, and sometimes I'll see three or four paragraphs of people uh, from people who, who are giving a full explanation of why they can't go. I tend to do it now just in one line, and I say, thank you for your invitation. I'm unable to attend. Um, good luck with the event. And, you know, somebody asked me and said, Barry, what's your purpose at, at your office, in your company? Do you want to be liked or do you want to be respected? And, you know, there's a lot around this piece in what you um, accept to do for other people. And I was, you know, originally saying, well, I want to be liked. And I think, well, I don't want to be liked. Really, I should be aiming to be respected. I want to be liked by my friends, but I'm not at work for friends. I'm at work because I want to perform really effectively as a very good um, leader. Paul O'Mahony has written a book recently on super productive, on, well, on time, and it's called Rethinking Time Management. And he talks about two types of time management. Um, he says there is productive time when we are working on something that we should be working on, and then the super productive time when one of two things is happening. Somebody else is working on the stuff that you should be doing, and that's all about delegation. Or somebody else is working on it because it's been outsourced. Now, I understand in your sector it's not easy to outsource things, but he will point to in his book the World Wide Web again, and he'll say, go to somewhere like upwork.com, and he'll pay like $50 for somebody to write him a report because 
it's full of people who are very skilled at things like report writing and doing Excel sheets and, and so on and so forth. And he thinks, why should I do it if it's going to take me a day and a half when I can pay somebody else to do it um, in um, an awful lot um, shorter period of time? Next, I want to talk about your relationship with your working environment. And you know, I think we have to judiciously guard our working environment. We really do. Not only from work overload, but also from information overload. I have a friend who is constantly moaning about the overwhelm that she feels from news items. And she's saying, it's just terrible. Everywhere you go, there's just news coming at you. And at the moment, most of the news is, is not very good. You know, it's Brexit or it's Trump or it's what have you. And I feel like saying to her, well, actually, it's your fault. You need to take action here. You just need to turn off the taps. And, you know, a couple of years ago, when I was really into Brexit and as a leader of a company trying to work out what to do and what the response of my company was being, I was probably spending about an hour to two hours every day watching Brexit issues and developments. And I found after a while I was feeling really quite stressed by this because I had no control over this at all. And there I was getting really mixed up in all, all of these particular events. And now what I do, I just limit myself to five minutes a day of news. And I'll go to somewhere like the BBC and they have a section and saying what you need to know in five minutes. Because it's interesting, there was a psychologist in America that found that people who had experienced more than six hours of news items about the Boston Marathon bombing actually suffered twice the amount of stress as people who had actually been there at the marathon on the day. So this issue of overwhelm very much relates to information and news just as it does in terms of actually work items. So I'd invite you to think about a news diet and going on a news diet. In terms of working on your workspace, I guess what I, I'm here doing now is calling on my experience as an employment lawyer. And I'd say to you this, that most job descriptions are set down by people who are perhaps not an expertise in, de in designing jobs. And when that happens, you tend to get them relying on default positions. And default position for, for work is nine until five. I would encourage you to think about one change that you could make to your working environment relating to the hours that you do or where you do that work and go to your employer, your boss, and negotiate for that change. It may be only a small change. Staff in my workplace, I've got one guy who started on 9 to 5 and then we had a chat and said, look, is there anything else which would suit you better? And now he starts at 8 o'clock and he leaves at 4 o'clock. And it's just a very small change. But for him, it makes all the difference because he can um, avoid the majority of traffic when he's commuting to and from our work. Equally, could you do some of your work 
off-site? Could you do half a day at home? Could you go to your employer and say, look, I think I could work better one day a week or half a, a day from home? And the important thing here is how you make that case to your boss or your employer. And it's important to go to them and with your when you're negotiating and lay out how your employer is going to benefit from this. Because if you have better quality rest time, you'll be better rested. So when you're in the workplace, you should be more effective. I would encourage you to be brave there because you know in law, you have a right to make that application. There isn't a duty on the employer to grant it, but there is a right that you have to make that application for consideration of hours that suit you better. So I would encourage you all to be bold and to be brave there. That next size says go off grid regularly. Perhaps it should say go off grid daily because you know the hard truth is that I don't think we are wired to be constantly wired to the internet. It's just not healthy for us. We need our solitude. We need our time away from the influence of everybody else and everything else. And what I do now, I go home and once I'm home, I switch my phone onto airplane mode. And if I want to make a call in the evening, I'll switch it back briefly. And I, I promise you, I've, I've not missed anything of real significance and important. I couldn't help but just dip into an HR space very, very quickly, if, if you would bear with me. How many people here are in HR or have HR duties, functions? Just, okay. Very, very quickly. I mentioned at the beginning that we had um, our reassessment of gold to platinum. And just last week, we received a notice and certificate saying that we got platinum. And there were two things I think that really helped get us over the line, which I just wanted to share with you. The first of all is this, that if you have conflict in your organization, if you can go for a mediation process over a grievance procedure, because let me tell you, as a lawyer for five years doing employment law and as an employer for 20 years and more, I have never seen a grievance procedure work effectively and do constructive work in a workplace. If you can, go for a mediation process to resolve the conflict because it's a lot more constructive and you've got a lot better chance of getting um, a satisfactory outcome. How many people here have been involved in a process? Perhaps something went badly wrong and either you called a meeting to do an analysis or you were part of that meeting. Just put a hand up the last two years. You've, you've been involved in that sort of meeting. And that's exactly right. You should be going to those sorts of meetings to determine what has gone wrong. But let me ask you this. How many times have you been to a meeting or called a meeting because you wanted to analyze what went well? Something worked really well in your organization and you thought, I want to analyze this. How many times? How many people here? One lady there. Well done you. This, I think, is one of the most powerful things that you can do in an organization. And I think it really works for two reasons. First of all, it's a great way of recognizing people who have really delivered in the workplace. Secondly, it allows you to recognize the processes and procedures that have really worked in your organization. 
so that you can hopefully repeat those processes. And perhaps even at the time, you can suggest a few tweaks so that they will be even more effective. So my top five, they look like this. Number five, meditation, mindfulness. Call it what you, you want. There's something about being in the moment that is very powerful. But let me ask you this. How many times have you been at work and you've been in a meeting or you've been with your partner, talking with your partner, and you're not really there because you're thinking about something else that happened yesterday or you're planning forward in your mind about something that's really bothering you? The ability to be in the moment, I think, is a really powerful thing. And you have to train your mind to be able to do that. And I think mindfulness, 10 minutes a day, is the best way of doing that. And all the research is suggesting that it's really good for your own mental health and personal um, development. Um, there's lots of apps around. Headspace, Wake Up is, is another one that does guided meditation practice for you in 10 minutes every day. There's a guy called Tim Ferriss who writes a few books on leadership. Anybody come across Tim Ferriss here? He's written a number of um, best-selling books. One is called Tools of, of Titans, in which he interviews lots of people who've been very successful in lots of different industries. And he goes looking for common threads to try and identify why all these people in different sectors are being successful. And I don't know that he manages to find many, but probably two exceptions. One is majority of them do meditate 10 minutes a day. And the other is a majority of them journal. And they just go in in the morning and they get out an old-fashioned diary or journal, old-fashioned paper and pen, and just write down and just almost, if you like, brain puke and just get stuff on a page. And there's something really cathartic about that. I've been doing this for the last three or four months, and it's amazing what goes down on that page and the clarity that that process provides. Number three, sleep. There's a guy who um, has written a very important book, and um, he, um, the book is called something like Why We Sleep. And he is basically saying that we've got to stop uh, wearing sleep neglect like it's some badge of honor. And this notion that we can get by on four or five hours of sleep as something that we should be um, really proud of. We need to ditch that and we need to change our culture and accept that eight hours a day of um, an evening of quality sleep is what we really need and need to be aiming for. And there's two things that he says there. He says, when your alarm clock goes off in the morning, set it to go off in the evening again at a time when you should be in bed. And that's, I think, a, a very clever um, thing to do. He also says, look, instead of this thing here, get one of those things, put it by your bed. So when you wake up at night, perhaps you go to the, the toilet or something, this doesn't come with you when you start messaging and, and fiddling with the internet. And when you wake up in the morning, you don't make a grab for this, but you actually look at this old friend that might rem remind you of happy days when you were a child. I like that tip a lot. Number two, open door policies. Hands up if you are, operate an open door policy in your workplace. I'm going to be really cheeky here and upset a few people. Can I suggest that you ditch them? Can I suggest they're really damaging? 
You really don't want people coming at you through an open door, disrupting you from your time. Yes, you want people coming to see you. Yes, you have that function. But you want them to be doing that at a time that suits you in a process that suits you. And open doors, I remember when I started my company, the first thing I did was proudly wedge open the door to make a statement and say, look, I'm leader of this company, but I'm approachable. You can come and see me anytime. And they did. They were coming in all day long, taking me from the sort of work that I should have been doing. And I developed a dependency culture on me, and it was completely what I didn't want to do. And finally... This one here, the main thing is to keep the main thing the um, main thing. And this is my number one thing, and it chimes so much with what's been said by the first two speakers, to the point that you probably think they've put me up to it, but I promise you they haven't. But it's really important for you to go in and to concentrate on the stuff that needs to be done, and not kid yourself that you've been really... Um, efficient and effective because you've just been busy. So I would say to you, we need to develop an obsession with going in and focusing on the main three items that you need to be getting on with. There's a guy, a professor in the USA, who has written a book on changing behavior, which is really interesting. And Professor Duhigg says it takes 66 days to change a habit or to create a new one. And remember I said it right at the beginning, there's a bit of work that I would like you to do. Well, here it is. And what I would like you to do is just get this bad boy, get it out of your pocket, just hold it up for me. If you do that, just hold it up in the air. Everyone's got one. I know you've got one. Some people have got two, some people have got three. Don't say to me that you forgot it, you left it at home, because I don't believe you. Now, what I want you to do is to open it up and open up your email and to bang in my email address. And I want you to send me an email committing to do one thing that I've mentioned today and to go away and apply it over the next 66 days. Now, I promise you, I'm not going to abuse this process. You won't go onto some marketing list. I won't be e emailing you with messages that say you won't believe what Debbie Harry looks like now or anything like that. But it's important for you to commit and to make that first step to really change because there's more than 100 schools and trusts represented here. And if I can get you all doing one thing better, then that's powerful and that really makes my 30 minutes um, worthwhile. I just want to finish with a quote by a guy called Cal Newport. And he wrote this book, Deep Work, which is where I got the title from. And if I can read this without my glasses on, he said as follows, the ability to perform deep work is becoming increasingly rare at exactly the same time it's becoming increasingly valuable in our economy. As a consequence, the few who cultivate this skill and then can make it the core of their working lives, these people will thrive. Ladies and gentlemen, I think there's a huge opportunity for everybody here. Thank you so much for listening. You've been a great audience. Have a great day. Thank you.